welcome to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture with me, Davis. Today, we will be interviewing Marlene Budomalan. She is a mestiza woman of settler and Nahuas descent from southwestern Mexico, an ecologist and activist scholar in the Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice and a mother of two. Thank you for joining us on Office Hours today. I'm so glad that you contacted me. Thank you. Um, So let's start with the first question. What did you want to be when you grew up? Okay. So uh, thinking back, I guess I'll just tell this this story. As I grew up in um, Chicago, uh, which has very long winters, Um, my family is from a working class background. So I kind of grew up in a one-bedroom apartment with multiple people living in the apartment. And so my parents also would take us every summer um, to Mexico. And it was really in Mexico where I was able to really lose myself within the forests of my grandmother's mountainside home. Um, And that, I think, really marked me to be able to have this really, this feeling of liberation in just all the greenness and the aliveness, right, of that environment. And so that kind of stayed with me through a lot of my childhood. And so I think from then I knew that I wanted to do something with the environment. Um, Later on, I don't fully recall this, but I have friends who tell me, like, you know, you used to talk about in junior high and high school that you were going to become a marine biologist. And I honestly don't even remember saying that. Um, But it's incredible that I became a marine biologist. (laughs) Yeah, so eventually, you know, in in undergrad, um, I actually, you know, as this whole question of what do I want to be when I grow up, I did bounce around several um, undergraduate majors, including finance, including computer science. Anthropology was, like that in high school I do remember really wanting to be an anthropologist and I think when I got into college that was what I was planning to do and then somebody told me like you're going to be an anthropologist you're not going to make any money you're going to be in poverty like the rest of your life and that really struck me because as someone from a working class background I was like I need to be able to make more money because to support my family and everything so that actually caused me to transition and start thinking about all these other majors, and eventually I found myself in biology Whoa! as an undergrad. So kind of you started out with a clear idea of maybe what you wanted, and then you like bounced around and didn't know what you wanted, mm-hmm. and then went back to that main idea again. Yeah. Whoa. Came full circle. Came full circle. Yeah, and eventually um, I met the ocean at 19 years old through a geography class. Um, and that oh. stayed with me as well, and that's kind of what got, what got me in the direction of going towards more marine, ocean, you know, ecology, biology, oceanography. And since then, I had always been pursuing um, being able to, you know, have opportunities to, to get into that field, into the marine sciences. How was that for you, meeting the ocean for the first time? It was incredible. That actually happened in Belize. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a geography class that would make itself its way through the um, through Belize uh, along the coast. And so the first time I, you know, met the ocean, it was, and I, by met, I mean, I was immersed in it. I was able actually to walk into, you know, off the, you know, the, into the, beach the ocean. Of the ocean. Yeah. It was 
you know, this kind of like evening, like dusk, you know, the sun had set, the stars were coming out, and I was able to wade into the really warm Caribbean water. And I like see all these like there was all these jelly jellyfish that were like <laughs> on the beach and everything. So it was just uh, incredible. It was like very um, intriguing and inspiring, and you know, warm. It's it was like a warm Caribbean night. So it's it stayed with me. Um, and yeah, what did that inspire in you? Like obviously to go into academics of marine, but like what else? Well, it was really like thinking about. I think the largeness of the ocean was a big part mm-hmm. of it. Like, and realizing it was just like this, the majority of our planet is water, right? It's like 70% of our earth is this ocean. And I think an, an additional element, again, having been drawn to biology and the study of life, I was very much intrigued by the largest animals on our planet, mm-hmm. whales in particular. Um, so again, even though, you know, I met the ocean that evening to my geography class, as I continued to look into, um, that field, I eventually like decided, you know, or became very attracted towards learning about marine mammals and marine mammal, um, communication, uh, acoustic communication and all that. But I think overall, I mean, it, it's really just the sense of being, outside immersed in um an environment just like as when I was a little girl it was that environment was a forest um and that particular time as a 19 year old it was the ocean um and I just decided like well if you know if I'm gonna go to the environment and I could really kind of pick any system that I want to specialize in then I think I'll pick the ocean given how large it is and how you know incredible how many things there are to discover or like learn about um within that we don't even know yeah yeah Mm -hmm. the ocean's so huge what made you want to go to college in the first place so i that was never a question i think um my parents played a big role in really emphasizing that it was really only through education that I would ever be able to, like, climb that economic ladder, right? That So my parents are both um, immigrants to this country. They came to this country as, you know, undocumented people, um, seeking a better life. Uh, and they knew, you know, given all the challenges of what it means to live in the shadows, that for their children, education was really that way, that possibility for us to, you know, really become, to just have access to all kinds of not only knowledge, but also careers. And that's a big deal because, as I said, coming from a working class background, you know, my parents worked really long hours in factories and kind of weren't there that much because of how much they worked. Um, They, like I said, my mom especially always very much ingrained the importance of what education was going to do for our lives and that was within the context too of you know like growing up in a neighborhood that had uh, so many gangs around like I was actually very much affiliated with gangs for a long time Mm -hmm. and it it came close to you know my path could have gone down and ended in a very um you know difficult way like it did for most of my Mm -hmm. cousins and most of my family who are now locked up or you know not having graduated high school or kind of you know 
struggling to really, you know, economically, etc. But it was really like my mother and, you know, my dad working so much that they really ingrained in myself and my siblings that if you want, you know, to have access opportunities um, and you know, you're going to have to stick on the educational part. And so eventually that run over, that one over, um, again, us really wanted to go to college. And then the other part of it too is that culture played a big part in saving, I would say really saving, uh, well, myself from the whole path of gangs. Um, and that was because I really started to become immersed in like, I started doing Mexican folkloric dancing and really learning about um, some family history, you know, as being a, a mestiza woman, a Mexicana, living in diaspora, um, that in essence gave me um, a sense of empowerment and really reaffirmed my ad- identity as a person that comes from a history of strong people that have survived um, so many things and, and managed to thrive. And so that was empowering, you know, in the face of going through an education system that tells you that, no, you're not going to make it. You're just one more, you know, brown woman that's going to end up pregnant. You're going to end up dropping out. You're, Mm -hmm. you know, a gang member, kind of really devaluating you Mm -hmm. um, throughout all of education. So I knew that I was going to defy all of that. And so that also gave me, so it was a combination of things, you know, my parents, um, culture, and then my decision to defy what I was supposed to be and really define that for myself. So that's why I was like, okay, college is, it's going to happen. And I actually had made a decision pretty early on in high school. I said, okay, what's the highest education level I can get? And when I learned it was a PhD, I made a decision that I was going to get my PhD. And so I've been on this path for a long time. (laughs) It was not easy, but I, I, I had to do that for my family, for myself. And sure enough, like, my siblings are also, like, currently, you know, getting their education. And Mm -hmm. from all of our cousins, we're, the three of us out of, like, 16 cousins are the only ones that graduated high school and have completed an undergrad. And now myself, PhD, and my sister's also currently in a PhD program. Wow. That's a big promise to make to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. (laughs) What... Was that for you? Because, like, you were talking about maybe, like, being affiliated in gangs a little bit, yeah. too. And how how did you walk that edge? Like, you were talking about culture. You were talking about mm-hmm. your family. But that's also in you, right? Like, that's, oh, that's a decision. That's a... Definitely. Yeah. And that's why I'm so sensitive to the criminalization of people, especially people of color, because it's so much of our actions and our behaviors are contextual, given the limitation of opportunities and also what you are told you're supposed to become but also so it's like it's a a confluence of all that you know that like you said I will always take that with me and and so when I see uh, you know even in my own family still you know like or other you know young people who are kind of involved like and so many of my family was involved too Mm -hmm. it's just like I don't like the fact that we're dehumanized so easily and like completely written off and so part of what I wanted to do is challenge that it's like no I'm still human and I'm gonna recover my humanity and yes I can do it despite you know making certain choices as a child right because a lot of 
gangs gangs normally target youth uh, around 11, 12 years old. That's when you start actually getting targeted to join gangs. Whoa. You're a child. You and haven't so, really developed your identity no, of the world, yeah. You're in the midst, yeah, in the midst of that. So it's okay, like it's okay to, you know, have, in, have made those decisions, you mm-hmm. know, and you can come back from that. And gangs also provide, you know, originally when gangs, you know, came together, they were actually groups of people that were trying to defend their communities from, like, police or other types of um, uh, just oppression that was happening with the neighborhoods. And eventually, you know, this whole kind of network of organized, you know, whatever, be drug dealing or what have you, started kind of infiltrating all that. But there's been, it's a long history that has a lot of dimensions. Mm -hmm. But gangs also offer a community. It's like a false sense of community. But nevertheless, it's a community. And I think a lot of youth look for that and also a sense of power that, again, we're in, I would say, an education that's really meant for a certain, you know, for within the white dominant society. It's really meant to, it tells you that you're really not worth it, you know, like that Mm. um, you are supposed to become this other thing. And, and again, that's part of what I've worked to really, again, like I've always... I like sharing that part of my history, because, especially with youth, to show them kind of like that, you know, you can um, see, you know, empower yourself through other means. And one of those ways is through knowledge. And hopefully, like, um, going back now, I stand to go back to sh- the city of Chicago soon um, to start, you know, making those connections again with all those youth mm-hmm. and sharing, like, my story um, and really hoping, like, that's part of the plan, too, as... And, you know, as I come into these positions that, you know, I, I have the, this certain set of income, but also access to some resources that I can now use those resources again in the communities like the ones from which I come. Mm-hmm. So so it's again, it's a very much like trying to humanize, you know, the people that are often criminalized um, and excluded because of, you know, certain decisions they might have made but also you have to really acknowledge the context and the history mm-hmm. and what you know it means like there's so much more so many more dimensions embedded within within in the structures and in the community mm-hmm. and in yeah how is it when you went from being in high school and in mm-hmm. that community to going to undergrad that must have been a sh- culture shock how is how was that for you so i went to a commuter school in the north side of the city. Mm-hmm. So um, I went to Northeastern Illinois University, which is, I believe, still one of, if not the most diverse university on, in the nation, and not just across ethnicities, but across ages, across religion, across a whole bunch of um, axes of identities. Um, I actually, and I actually worked full-time. I went to school for full-time for three, three years, And then when I realized, like, I would have to probably do, like, three more years, I, towards the end, I decided, okay, I need to focus on, and also be able to take the classes for my major that were only scheduled during the day. So I decided to quit my job and take a big student loan um, to do that. And the student loan also, because by that time I was living with my partner and my partner was undocumented, so his work was seasonal. Um, and because of that, like, we actually had to find a way to get through the winters. And by the end of my undergrad, like, 
I wasn't, I didn't have my full-time job anymore. So the student loans actually got, was just through the winter. Um, but I, I was also able to, you know, like take classes and like finish. So it took me five years to get my undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that transition, yeah, it was kind of like, it, you know, just from, just going from work to school. Like I did that for a long time. I never, it was hard to get involved with anything on campus, even though, you know, I had friends and stuff, but you know, being from Chicago, I was, you know, I was playing soccer as well. Like, I, I had other forms of community and doing mm-hmm. the Mexican folk art, like the cultural stuff as well, um, and then school. So I definitely had, like, a lot on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really intense. Did you sleep? <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> I think now, like, wow. <laughs> you were young. You could do it. Yes, yeah. I think it's that. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. But, yeah, it's. It's just very much like a, a commuter experience, I would say. And it sounds like time. really intense. Like you were going, going, going forward, just continuously. Mm-hmm. Without, did you feel like you were able to reflect or pause, really? Or? Uh, I don't. Not so much. <laughs> so when did that happen? Like after undergrad, or I think it hasn't even happened yet. Mm-hmm. I've been going straight to, uh, into postdoc. So after undergrad, I did a post back program, a post-baccalaureate research tech program at University of Chicago for a year, and that program was incredible because it allowed me to uh, get ready for the GRE exams, to be able to apply for grad school, and also just, you know, get more research experience in an ecology lab. Mm -hmm. So I took that time to apply for grad school. Again, that was the second round, the first time I did not get into anywhere. My GRE scores were horrible. So that program allowed me to kind of pick everything up, you know, be able to apply again and actually get into grad school. Mm. So then I got into grad school, (laughs) and that's when I came here to California um, to do a program in biological oceanography at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UCSD. Um, And I did my PhD, and then I immediately went into a postdoc after, and uh, right now I'm at, at a place where I'm hoping to slow down this summer. So I haven't quite gotten quite, wow. I've just kind of been going. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a lot of education. Yeah. Continuously. But yeah. education. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. How has that been for you? It's intense. It's intense. I also had two children along the way in grad school. Um, and I also got my husband residency while in grad school. So, wow. Citizenship. <laughs> Whoa. And graduated. <laughs> yeah, so it's been intense. Um, and I'm looking forward, even though I don't have, I'm waiting to hear back to see if I got any of the research postdocs I applied for for the next academic year. If I don't get anything, it'll be okay. Because I think at that point, I mean, I'll still be applying for stuff, but it'll be kind of a breather for our family. And, I, you know, I'm looking forward to that, to just kind of being a mom and being present with my family. Because the other thing, you know, to, to stay competitive in academia, publishing has been challenging for me because I am a mom. I became a mom as a grad student. Mm-hmm. And so I actually was faced with, well, my family was faced with the choice of, you know, how do I stay competitive? How am I going to find the time to publish all this stuff, balancing all the things I had to balance, given, you know, I was starting to teach here, 
um, just doing research and also trying to get publications out to be able to have a competitive curriculum for actually applying for a tenure track position. And so the decision we ended up making was for my family, my children, and my husband to be in Mexico, um, in Iguala, while I focused on this postdoc so I could publish as much as I could. I mean, the other challenge within that is that we are also struggling with my son who has like very high, he's very hyperactive and kind of mm-hmm. like a more defiant boy. Um, so it's been a struggle initially for him to, you know, he got kicked out of childcare and, and so it was just like as two working people in our family and not really having like an extended family here in California, like we just were very uh, overwhelmed with what it would mean for me to try to continue to put in all the time I needed to to bring up my curriculum and be competitive while also um, dealing with all the stuff we have to, like, in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, family. So that's when we decided, okay, we already sacrificed, like, those seven years for you to get your PhD, so mm-hmm. now let's see if if we sacrifice this one more year um, so that you could build up your curriculum and then be competitive to apply for a tenure-track job that eventually would be comfortable for our family right because once you're in a tenure track job it gives you the flexibility you know to do research wherever you're going to do research and for us that was in Mexico mm-hmm. so we decided to make that sacrifice and again it's it's been kind of intense and I, I don't have regrets about it in terms of like I feel now like I d- was able to submit a bunch of papers but I feel you know and that will I will be applying for stuff um, in fall but I would never, I won't have regrets about it, but I don't ever plan to do that again, to mm. sacrifice my family in that way again. Um, it, but I, I, I feel, like, good up that I would have, we, we really, it's not even an I, it's a we, because it's been our whole family in this. We would have given at least the track of academia our best shot. And that's all we can do. Like, I don't feel like we're willing to sacrifice much more. And it's like, let's see what happens. And I'll just, at this point, like, while I'm in Mexico, I'll, like, keep applying for stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'll also be a mom at the same time, you know. And Is that the first time you've been able to really do that? To do what? Be a mom in that way. Like, just take, well, you said it's the first time you're able to take a breather. But, like, yeah. really, yeah, you know, I mean, nestle yourself in that position as a mom. So... When I go back, so the way that it's worked out is that I was able to spend all of last summer with my family in Mexico. Mm. And also in the winter, I go away for like the month and a half break that we get. Um, And then I kind of just, I come back and I just do this academic thing. And now this summer, I will be a mom again. Like, in ter- I mean, I'm a mom no matter mm-hmm. what, right? And yeah. today is actually Mother's Day in Mexico. Really? I didn't <laughs> yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was getting all these videos of my kids. Um but, you know, the, being away is really intense, and it's a huge sacrifice, and I, I'm really excited to, in the next week and a half, I'll be with my kids, and I plan to never let them go ever again, you know, it's just like, <laughs> mom will not leave like that ever again. Um, but, I mean, we, I feel like not only did it allow me to write all these papers and submit them, but it also, the income, it was just a lot cheaper for them to live in Mexico, mm-hmm. so we're actually be able to pay a lot of our debt that we've been carrying for a while including that student debt like we're not done paying it Mm -hmm. but you know it really sets us up to it put us in a better place in terms of if we do in the long term want to be in Mexico which is kind of our dream my husband's dream 
then that gives us more uh, of an opportunity to do that. That makes sense. What, I mean, you were balancing this being a mom and going into academics, but what else Mm -hmm. were battles that you didn't really see when you started going into, or like things that you had misconceptions about when you started going into this like academic track? That's a good question. Misconceptions of the academic track. I mean, I think, I mean, I've learned a lot about academia as a grad student. You know, it's honestly the whole world of academia didn't exist to me as, you know, a second generation, um, as Tisa woman, you know, daughter of Mexican immigrants from southwestern Guerrero. Um, the world is just was not existent. I didn't grow up with even knowing that, it, you know, it was a thing. It wasn't until high school that I realized PhDs didn't exist. <laughs> um, and then you promised yourself to be one. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm going to get that. <laughs> um... So, in terms of, yeah, misconceptions, like, I think, I like I said, I've learned in grad school what kind of it, the different types of academic institutions that there are and what the amount of time that you could expect to put into or be working, in, depending on which, you know, position you get and at which institution. Um, I think as a postdoc... I mean, I've been very pleased to be here at USD, actually. Like, I've loved my students, and I've learned so much from, you know, faculty meetings and mm-hmm. I mean, able to talk to, being faculty, really, about the way that the whole institution is structured. Um, I, oh, I'm looking forward to learn more if I do get into an academic tenure track position. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I don't think it's just been kind of been a learning process. I, I think I, don't, I haven't. If you didn't have like a previous understanding of what it was, I don't you know. can't really come in with any yeah. misconceptions. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like kind of been learning, and then as I learn, I'm like, okay, I, I've seen. I'm looking at the possibilities. Okay, I could do mm. that. I could do this. Ultimately, like, the other reason I got my PhD, you know, it's not just like, oh, I'm gonna get. The other reason is that I realized is that um, it really open the possibility for myself being and my family being able to be in Mexico. So I saw the opportunity through research and the way the things that I, you know, study and the way that I carry that research um, and do it that I could build that field work and based in Mexico into my research program. And so that's again something that's been very attractive to my, me and my family because it's like oh well you could just build our dream of you know having our connection with our family in Mexico with our community with our kids knowing their grandparents and their uncles and aunts and those same mountains that I grew up in that can in a sense I could work it into you know the, the, I'm an ecologist so mm-hmm. the questions and the things I think about and so that's something that you know I definitely see a as a possibility as I continue to pursue these positions. So that's very attractive as well. Um, But yeah. How has it been holding on, because earlier you were talking about being an undergraduate and Mm -hmm. going and doing these dances that were cultural, Mm -hmm. like when you were a kid doing the cultural things, do you feel like you've been able to hold on to that cultural identity as you have continued through Mm -hmm. academics? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I don't, dance anymore the way I used to uh, I think it's been fundamental to the questions I ask as a scientist 
the research that I do. Mm. I study what's called coupled human natural systems, which is really just um, and with a particular focus on indigenous uh, societal environmental systems. And what that does is you really think about the way that people are connected to environment and the way that environment are connect is in fact is connected to people. Um, and so I've relied on very much um, the, my background to really guide some of the questions that I have in terms of once you consider uh, the way that different cultures relate to environment, right, or even different different indigenous societies, you have different cosmologies and ways of knowing and ways of being mm. and valuing within these different environments. What does that then um, say about what we can expect for these systems that include people to look like, right? In ecology, we typically um, tend to define people as mainly a negative force. We often talk about human impacts and, like, you know, human impacts need to be curbed and, um, you know, there's overfishing and there's deforestation, like, all very proximal causes of destruction of environment but I very much think that by having this more systems view and looking at the way that people are linked to environments that we really need to push to the ultimate reasons for that and not necessarily always consider people as a negative force um, because the reality is that across our planet uh, I believe that it's more than 80% of the hot spots, the biodiversity hotspots on the remaining, remaining biodiversity hotspots <laughs> on the planet are all on indigenous territories. And so that says something about what is it about the way that indigenous people relate to environment, the, the way that their cosmologies are, are, you know, based or contextualized with these environments, the relationships they have that allow for such, you know, diversity to exist on their territories. Mm -hmm. And why aren't we acknowledging that and talking about that in ecology? I really think that it's in people that the hope lies. Like, not, you're not going to get very far by continuing to demonize people and, like, individual, indivi you know, focus on individual impacts, but let's mm -hmm. talk about the larger structures um, of environmental impact, and, and that's getting more into thinking about um, you know, extractive relationships with the planet that are, you know, an arm of capitalism and as well as colonialism. Let's talk about what that does, you know, the, the genocidal impacts of that on peoples, you know, the imposed erasure of relationships and stealing of children to, mm -hmm. you know, erase those relationships and that culture and those ways of living in, in those particular places, the impact of that. I think that that very much has to be a part of the conversation as ecologists because if you're an ecologist you think about dynamic dynamics mm -hmm. you think about the way these systems work you think about what's the forces driving um the way these systems look the way they behave and in that you have to you know think about the variety the diversity of ways that people relate to the systems and then what's affecting that so i kind of combine um, these long time scale of views, but also structures within the way that people relate to environments. I really have very much hope and believe in people, um, and I just try to bring all that into my classroom and like these all these alternative ways that exist um, and the way that people are really agents, um, especially at the grassroots levels, that are fighting to defend and not lose and see the death of these environments mm -hmm. from like extractivist projects like mining, 
like uh, the installation of large-scale monocultures, like all these palm oil fields that are coming in. So that's the kind of conversations and, and, and larger structural dynamics that I like to bring into my classroom and also my research as well. That's really cool. Yay! <laughs> I really appreciate that. In I know I'm taking a class with you. It's called decolonizing um, epistemologies. What is it called? Decolonizing science, faith, and environmental justice. <laughs> it's quite the mouthful. It's quite the mouthful, but it's such a good class because it talks about those things and it brings like different perspectives in a place where I don't think that it's really seen all that much a place in a field the whole discipline doesn't yeah, <laughs> really talk about it and why is that mm-hmm. you know i only see that you start getting these diversity even you know people from diverse backgrounds to be able to ask the, the, those questions we're talking about like a very much male dominated you know white dominated field mm-hmm. um and so now you're starting to see a, a little by little, you know, more and more the presence of, you know, people of color, just people from a whole range of different backgrounds, including women, including mothers. I think that's um, really important, too, as, like, professors, too, mm-hmm. being able to see professors that look like you and yes. see professors that, like, are doing the things and asking the questions like you are. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I'm... That pumps me up totally. So, it's excited too. For me, or for like students that are about to graduate or want to go into your field, what do you think? What's some advice that you would give us? I would say that be always a fine community, like trying to find each other. So, as someone who went into grad school, again, I was trained as a biologist in undergrad. I went into an ecology program, um, and I feel like a lot of my background, I didn't really, I wasn't able to really bring the, my own personal experience to the forefront until I found a collective of natural and social scientists that were activists, organizers, artists, people in ethnic studies, like all types of scientists. Um, I found this intimate group that was about 10 of us where I was, I felt like I was really able to finally connect and and learn the language to describe a lot of my own personal background and the whole um just language for describing the structure of that we're embedded in you know like institutionalized racism racism um capitalism and colonialism and just i was able finally to see through conversations with these folks and through co-teaching courses together with these folks Mm -hmm. to really we, we exchanged our knowledges you know like and and that was completely um, essential for me to gain confidence and really raise my voice within my own field. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I was able to graduate, because it, it, in those spaces, they really provided a, a place where I could express myself and have this constructive criticism and genuinely like learn about a cross field. So I definitely want to encourage mm-hmm. like seeking out community where you can have those spaces to have those conversations. Any space that's interdisciplinary, I think, is very rich for learning across disciplines. I really think that's the future of science. Like, it's all, a lot of the problems, it's not just, like, disciplinary problems. I think more and more people have to come together across disciplines and really take this integrative approach um, to a lot of questions. You know, it's not just environment, you know, this divide between environment and people, like the environment and social doesn't really exist. A lot of it 
you know, intersex. And so I think that recommending that really community, interdisciplinary spaces. And I think, you know, honestly, I have to acknowledge the fact that mentors have been incredibly important. Mm. The support of mentors throughout since I was an undergrad has been tremendously important. Um, And I want to acknowledge them and, and really also, you know, encourage whoever's going to, you know, pursue their grad school to, to try to find those people that, you know, you connect with and that you know will be with you and carry you through the things that you have to learn or, you know, the different milestones you have to get through, whether it's, you know, an oral exam or, like, you know, uh, working to put your proposals together for your PhD, mm-hmm. getting the feedback to do that, you know, is, is very important. So, Yeah. Wow. Thank you. That's really good advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alright, well, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much <laughs> for the space. Um, and thank you to all the listeners for listening to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture with Marlene Brito Milan. Uh, make sure to share this podcast with your friends so they can dig deep with you into current research on campus, career possibilities, and the lives and stories of people after college, including their mistakes, misconceptions, and inspiring moments. Again, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next episode.